Now, before I get in and get going, I want to take a moment and wish all of our wargaming brethren in the Ukraine well. There are several Shot Shield listeners in the Ukraine, and if you have a chance to hear this, I hope you're well, I hope you're safe. There is uh, very little that individuals can do at a time like this, and all we can do is hope that the people in charge, the people in positions to actually do something, they do it so you can get back to living your life the way you like it. Stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders. Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout, and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Nampa, Idaho, Dulwich, England, and Athens, Greece, I am your parliamentarian of the podcast, the Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. There'll be a flag flying out there in the morning that I swore to uphold. It's a battle flag and it's a flag of victory. I'm rather proud to be under it. Now, in this episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast, I am joined by Chris Pringle, a former officer of the British Territorial Army and an academic publisher. He co-edited the English translation of Clausewitz, Napoleon's 1796 Italian campaign. He is the author of Bloody Big Battles, Rules for Wargaming the Late 19th Century, and a supporting blog and Facebook group. He is the editor of the book, Hungary, 1848, The Winter Campaign, which you can pick up at Hellion and Company Publishers' website. Chris and I will be looking into the Hungarian Revolution. It's a little later in the show. Also, I got a new scenario for you called Mapping. I dig into the audio archives for another old radio moment with a 19th century or colonial twist. I have a movie review for you. Instead of a watch-along, I'm going to do a movie review for The Santa Fe Trail with Errol Flynn. But first, on the Shot and Shield Supercast, let's get into your emails and DMs. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington DC calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, son. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. All right, so we're just kind of getting into it today. First email comes from Howard in Chicago. And he writes, Scott, I saw your cryptic post on Facebook about sharing posts. If I didn't know better, I'd think that somebody made you mad. He said, he said, anyway, I try to keep this uh, show G rated, right? But uh, (laughs) he says, I think somebody made you mad. Who crapped in your Wheaties, man? Nobody messes with the man. Who are we boycotting? (laughs) Okay, Howard, look. So, okay, so here's what happened, all right? I'll clarify this because it kind of, it kind of, it did make me kind of, at first it gave me, uh, so, so stupid. I post uh, anything that I paint or anything that I have going on or anything that I, I, I find in other, in other places, I share it to the Shot and Shield War Games podcast uh, Facebook group, okay? And then from there, I share it to other groups, okay? And I pick and choose, I don't send uh, pictures of my Kashgaris from 1850 to the back of Beyond group, okay? I just, I don't do that because, you know, what do they care, right? I mean, I'm just saying, I don't post pictures of my, my Afghans to the terrain group because what do they care, right? And so I kind of pick and choose like that. And I share this because I got to tell you, it's easier for me. <laughs> it's purely easier for me. I write my little piece. I put my pictures up. I share it to the groups that matter. And then 
that's it, right? Instead of going to each group that we're a part of and posting the pictures and writing the deal, right? So I was a member of this terrain group, okay? And in that terrain group, there was like 20,000 people in that terrain group. And I would go ahead and share every time I got a building made or I made some trees or something, I'd share it to the group because I wanted to, you know, share just like everybody else is sharing, right? Well, I got kicked off because the rules in that group were you can't share from other Facebook groups. It had to be, you have to participate that way. You know, it's just singular without sharing from a post from another group. <sighs> really? To me, that sounds petty. Now, I don't mind getting kicked off, whatever. You know, I mean, it's Facebook, right? But the whole idea is that, look, for the Shot and Shield War Games Facebook group, if you are a member of that group, which I hope you become a member if you're not already a member, and you're in another group and you find something that's cool that you think that would benefit the people that are on the Shot and Shield War Games Facebook group, share it. What do I care? It doesn't matter. I'm not going to get all Nazi like that and go like, oh, you got to do it this way. I'm not dictatorial like that. I just think that, uh, you know, it's all a big community, so why you got to be petty like that? To me, that's petty. That's it. Ain't no big deal. I wish everybody well. I got kicked off. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm so sorry, you know? <laughs> Whatever. I'm not like uh, sitting here holding a grudge about it. I just kind of looked at it and went, what? How can I not do this anymore? Oh, I got kicked off. Oh, really, man? And I broke the rule. I shared something from another, another Facebook group. Ooh, please. Look, you're... All of us here are members of all kinds of different Facebook groups. I'm a member of the colonial one. There's like two colonial ones. There's the, the men who would be kings. There's the sword in the flame. There's a 19th century this. Uh, there's a small arms this. There's this, that. And there's this. There's a train here, a train there. You know, I mean, I, I'm probably a member of like 50 groups. I share it. Share it. It's not a big deal. Anyway, so it kind of perturbed me. So that's why I thought I put the message on the on the uh, Shot and Shield War Games Facebook uh, group just so I could say, hey, look, you know, if you got something, do it, share it. I don't care. I'm not going to be like a dictatorial like that. Uh, this is the way it is. We're all sharing our stuff. We're sharing stuff we think is cool. It all helps us be better. That's my thought. That's it. I'm done. All right. I'm moving on. <laughs> Email number two from Jorge in Buenos Aires. Now, first off, uh, Jorge, I appreciate the email, but I did have to put it in the translator, so I hope that I still get the essence of your question. All right, here we go. Jorge writes, Florida Scott, I listen to Shot and Shield mostly when it comes out. You do a good job. Did you see Firelock is going to have a 19th century game? Yes, I did. I did, and I think I put it in a Shot and Shield bonus um, last month. And uh, I've already had a conversation with the, uh, the designers of the Firelock uh, game, all right, Blood and Steel. We've already had this conversation, and you're going to hear that interview very, very soon. You have to keep listening to the Shot and Shield Supercast. Keep going to the page, because at any day it may download, okay? Because I got it ready, got it ready to go, waiting for one thing. And then once I get that one, that one like, just note, boom, and then you're going to see it right up there. And then me and the guys uh, from Firelock Games are going to have this conversation. It's very, very interesting. Very excited for the Blood and the Steel um, war game to come out. Very, very excited. So keep listening to the Shot and Shield Supercast. And keep listening and keep watching the uh, podcast site. And maybe set your notifications so you get that notification that says, Hey, guess what? Boom, there's another one. It's a bonus. 
and we're talking to Firelock Games. Okay, so there you go. So, yes, Jorge, thank you very much. Yes, I did see that and very excited for that as well. Uh, next email from Gregory in Berlin. <laughs> he writes, Gregory writes, My Lord, <laughs> as an American living in Germany, I'm fascinated with the rich history of this country. When are you going to dig into some 19th century Germany? I do have plans to um, get into some 19th century Germany. I'm working on uh, some interviews regarding Germany versus Austria versus Germany versus Denmark and versus uh, Germany versus France. Um, I'm also working on some uh, German colonialism in Africa. So I got some stuff in the pipeline working on it. So yes, uh, you know, one of these, one of these episodes, you're going to hear some stuff regarding 19th century Germany. Um, I do appreciate you listening uh, to the uh, podcast, uh, Gregory in Berlin. And also you don't have to call me my Lord. I'm, I'm just Scott. I'm just Scott. That's it. Nothing else. <laughs> my Lord. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's it uh, for uh, the emails today. If you have an email, what you want to do is shotandshield at gmail.com. Just send it on over. You can get on the Google machine, clickety, 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 click, um, and uh, send me that email. If you have a question, if you have, a, if you have something you want to say, I'll read it. I don't mind. Um, if you did not hear your emails because I answered you directly, and uh, the, these emails are stuff that I think everybody needs to hear. And so there might be a question that you have that might be kind of really singular uh, that I'll answer just directly to you. So, yeah, shotandshield at gmail.com. You can also uh, do on the Twitter, at shotandshield, at shotandshield. All right, so there we go. Coming up next, we got our movie review. I'm not doing a watch-along this, uh, this episode, but I am going to do a movie review for the Errol Flynn classic, Santa Fe Trail. That's coming up next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. I hear the conditions in your army are appalling. Man, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. Shot and Shield. What are you looking at? It's time for Shot and Shield movie review. In this episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast, instead of doing a watch-along, I decided to give uh, you a movie review instead. Today, I'm going to be looking at Errol Flynn's classic, Santa Fe Trail. I shall request of the War Department upon your graduation next week that all of you be assigned to the most dangerous branch of the United States Army. The 2nd United States Cavalry, now stationed at Fort Leavenworth in the Kansas Territory. 
Santa Fe Trail, obviously starring Errol Flynn as Jeb Stewart, Ronald Reagan as George Custer, with Olivia de Havilland, Alan Hale, Raymond Massey, Van Heflin, War Bond, and a host of characters telling the story of John Brown's rebellion against the United States and slavery. Now, normally, as you know, I stay away from anything Civil War related. However, there is, uh, you know, there there are some interesting wargaming items that we can milk from this movie. How can you beat that? Fort Leavenworth, suicide pictures, Kansas, and the Santa Fe Trail. What a piece of luck. That's it. And the cavalry, active duty, promotion. Why, we'll all be generals while the rest of these fellas are still shaped. Oh, that's desolate country, Jeb. Nothing grows in Kansas but trouble. What are you talking about? I grew up out there, didn't I? Oh, I suppose he's not. Oh. Yeah, what'll I get you boys out there? Man alive, that's my stepping ground. <laughs> So look, in the United States, there are several military periods in the 19th century, all right? You have the Napoleonic period, which ends about the when the War of 1812 ends, okay? Then you move into this sort of expansionist, manifest destiny, American-Mexican conflict period, right? Then you move into the Civil War period, then into the Pony War period, and then finally into the Imperial period with the culmination of the Spanish-American War. The Santa Fe Trail, the movie, it's not a Civil War movie, okay? They try to pass itself off as a Civil War movie, but it's really kind of not. It actually falls in that expansionist, manifest destiny, Mexican-American conflict period. Now, we could argue the point, but we're not going to because I'm right. Just throw it down, just like that. Say, I got it now. We was on the same train a couple of months ago when that fella got killed. Uh-uh. You probably got me mixed up with somebody else. No, sirree. I never forget a face. <laughs> Although I was a little drunk at the time. Well, they are. Fellow you saw probably had two faces. Been in Palmyra long? Oh, just a couple of weeks. This ain't no time for barbers. The fellas that ain't trying to hide their faces for some reason or other are too mean to spend the money. <laughs> yes, I've heard you've got some pretty tough customers here. Oh, say. I'm afraid to shave half them. I'm afraid they'll get up and cut my throat. <laughs> Say, did you ever run across this famous, what's his name, John Brown? Sure, he came in here once. Strange-looking man with a hemp mark on his throat. Hemp mark? What's that? Oh, it's an old barber superstition. A, a little red line that runs all the way around here. Anybody born with that mark is bound to be hung. That's so. Uh, say, I haven't got one, have I? Not yet. Maybe. So the movie concept is that in 1854, freshly graduated from West Point, Jeb Stewart, George Custer bunch of their buddies all find themselves posted to Fort Leavenworth in the dangerous and war-torn Kansas territory. All against the backdrop of endless hostilities, Stuart and Custer escort a military freight wagon, and before long, they're confronted by abolitionist John Brown. Just a minute. I'd like to see those Bibles. There you are. Put your hands up and keep them up. Now, years later, in 1859, they crushed John Brown's rebellion at Harper's Ferry. Got John Brown of Kansas. I am. We've met before, I think. And thanks to Mr. Rader, we now meet again. This is Colonel Lee's formal demand for your surrender. Once more, sir, you overrate your strength in supposing that I can be taken against my will. That's your final answer? It is. We prefer to die here. As I said earlier, there is a ton of actors of note in this movie playing characters that probably never met. I mean, 
seriously in the so-called graduating class of 1854. You got Jeb Stewart, George Custer, Phil Sheridan, James Longstreet, George Pickett, John Hood, all led by Robert E. Lee and a graduation speech given by Jefferson Davis. I mean, come on, really? Cadet George Custer, Ohio. Cadet James Longstreet, South Carolina. Cadet Philip Sheridan, New York. Cadet J.E.B. Stewart, Virginia. Cadet John Hood, Kentucky. Cadet Robert Holliday, Kansas Territory. The the Hollywood really pressed historical accuracy to its limits, to its like envelope. It pushed the envelope out and turned it into a package. All right. I mean, really, really pushed it. However, let's just set that aside for a second because for a war gamer, this movie is nice because of three things. Hear me out. Let's get into the gaming aspect of this movie, okay? There are three decent scenario ideas. The first scenario idea is the war wagon convoy scene where John Brown holds up the wagon and then tries to get away, all right? Great, great idea for scenario. It's easy to set your forces in order to play the scenario as well because all you're doing is protecting the wagons. Nice, okay, so there's one. Let's take a chance. Everybody, take cover and open fire. Dismount! The next is the attack on the farmhouse in the dark, which you could you could take that and apply some fog of war rules to that scenario. Got a bunch of guys protecting a farmhouse. Out of the dark comes another force. And as long as you have this uh, line of sight that's very, very short and you use some fog of war rules, that could be a really interesting scenario. Well, it won't matter much. He's broken for good. From now on, he'll find every man's hand against him. And finally, the siege at Harper's Ferry. Just that alone is a really good scenario because the Harper's Ferry, if I remember right, and in, in the in the movie, it's a basically a big octagon. So it's not like you can frontal assault it. You have to like come at different directions. So in a way, that really is, for the attacker, that is a very, very difficult scenario to succeed in. There's to be no parley. Yes or no? If it's a refusal, wave your hat to us. Right. Hang on to this, will you? And that's what I gleam out of this movie. I mean, there's three real decent scenarios that you could adapt, and you could adapt this to any game and any theater. If you wanna, if you wanna bust it out in Southeast Asia, if you wanna bust it out in China, if you wanna bust it out in the Sudan, you can, you can do that. 
because I think you're not stuck with the U.S. soldier riding with the wagons. You see what I'm saying? So here's what I'd like you to do. The movie is free on YouTube. If you go to the Shot Shield YouTube page right now, search out the folder that's titled Movies of the Period. That movie is right there. Give it a watch and make notes as far as scenarios go because you, they really do a good job kind of encompassing how each one of those three scenarios are built. Captain Brown, they're coming up the road with a flag of truce. Overall, the Santa Fe Trail is fun. It is. It just gets a little heavy-handed with the morality, which is probably good, you know, considering it came out in 1940, right? Now, we get it. And there are a ton of great actors. I, I'm not going to sit here and, like, just beat on Errol Flynn because you know I'm a fan, but... I mean, Errol Flynn, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan does a great job in this. You got Alan Hale in this. I mean, Alan Hale, I mean, that dude's like everybody's dad. And just a, a ton of actors in this that you're like, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that guy. You know what I'm saying? So, and like I said, when you watch the movie, you're going to get some really nice scenario ideas that you can take away. So do it. Go see it. Make your notes. It's not a bad movie at all. And, you know, like I said, it's kind of fun if it doesn't get a little heavy handed with the morality, if you kind of kind of let that fly by you. Their welcome guests and their very proud families. I'll not keep you separated very long as I myself once sat in your place and endured an interminable address by a very tiresome general. <laughs> but as a secretary of war of this nation, I have a serious obligation towards each new officer of the army before he enters into active service. And that obligation is to make clear and definite his responsibility to his government. We are a new nation among the powers of the world. Just 80 years ago, we were fighting desperately for our freedom. And we're still fighting to keep it. We are not yet a wealthy nation, except in spirit. And that unity of spirit is our greatest strength. You men have but one duty, one alone, America. With your unswerving loyalty and the grace of God, our nation shall have no fears for the future. And your lives will have been spent in the noblest of all causes, the defense of the rights of man. That's what I got today for a movie review. Now, coming up next on Shot and Shield, we take a look at the Hungarian Revolution of 1848 with Chris Pringle. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. 
Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. This is Shot and Shield. I'm waiting for an explanation. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century war gaming. It looks bad in the newspapers and upset civilians at their breakfast. This is Shot and Shield. like to thank you for continuing to listen to the Shot and Shield podcast. And before I present my interview with Chris Pringle, I wanted to just uh, make a note for you that the audio might be a little messed up. Not on Chris's part, but on mine. For some reason, my microphone shorted out during our chat, and I wasn't really aware of it until I started to sit down and edit. So you may hear some garbled audio from me. And I cleaned it up uh, where I could, but the most important part is Chris, because he has such great information, and it's clear for sure. So I don't want to ditch the whole thing. I, I want to play it for you because Chris does have some fantastic information for you. So without wasting any more time, I am joined by Chris Pringle, a former officer of the British Territorial Army and an academic publisher. He co-edited the English translation of Clausewitz, Napoleon's 1796 Italian campaign. He is the author of Bloody Big Battles, Rules for Wargaming the Late 19th Century, and a supporting blog and Facebook group. He is the editor of the book Hungary 1848, The Winter Campaign, which you can pick up at Hellion & Company Publishers' website. The Hungarian Revolution is today's topic on Shot and Shield, and Chris is going to educate me because my knowledge of the Hungarian Revolution is pedestrian at best. Chris, thank you for joining me today on Shot and Shield. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Let's just get into it. Can you give us some background on the Hungarian Revolution? Maybe bullet point it, how it began, who was involved, and what the Hungarians wanted to achieve by this whole thing. Okay, uh, where to start, really? The thing is, it's a, it's a big war. This is a war that lasts a year and has round figures, 100,000 dead. So it's a serious conflict, yet nobody knows about it. And <laughs> a Hungarian historian friend of mine says, Hungary's best defense is its language. And, and that's the case here, I think. The reason nobody's heard of it, the only people who write about it are the Hungarians, and that's a language that nobody reads. And the Austrians found it all too embarrassing to talk about. All right, so what, what's going on? It's situated, it's halfway through the century, isn't it? And you've got, since the Napoleonic Wars, you've had 30 years of peace. And the, the crowned heads of Europe, they'd got together to keep the lid on. We don't want any more of this revolutionary stuff. So they, they've kept the peace for 30 years. And the Austrian army hasn't done anything serious for 30 years. And it's just got old. And, and they're still using Napoleonic weapons and tactics. But meanwhile, you've had this uh, all the social and economic changes and technological developments and urbanization and industrialization. And, and the, the urban proletariat is getting a bit antsy. In the spring of 1848, across Europe, really, you start getting uh, revolutionary unrest. There's revolutions in Italy and a revolution in Vienna, riots and revolutions all across Europe. The Kaiser, Ferdinand, finds himself with a bunch of problems all at once. As I'm sure you know, Austria, it's a polyglot empire. It's a bunch of different nationalities. And he's trying to hold it together when there's revolutions, particularly in, 
in Italy. And meanwhile, in Hungary, which is about half the empire in terms of territory and population, in Hungary, there's pressure for reform, liberalization, democracy, devolution, more autonomy. The Kaiser's got this war in Italy already, and he doesn't want to be fighting a war on two fronts. So he makes some serious political concessions to Hungary. The 12 points, they're called, a set of laws which the Hungarians asked for. And he said, yeah, okay, take what you want, just don't start another fight. But then as, as the year goes on, he kind of gets on top of the Italian problem and the other problems. And there's a, an insurgency in the southeast of the empire where the Serbs are fighting not so much against the Austrian empire, they're fighting against their local Hungarian overlords because northern Serbia is part of the kingdom of Hungary. And the Kaiser kind of sees an opportunity here to reassert his authority and, and go back on his word. So he doesn't invade himself. The imperial army doesn't invade Austria, invade Hungary, anything like that. The imperial army is actually Actually, a chunk of it is supposedly helping the Hungarians squash the Serb insurgents. Though mm -hmm. so the imperial forces aren't very good at obeying the Hungarian government's orders. But another part of the Kingdom of Hungary, gee, it's complicated, is is uh, Croatia, which is a kind of vassal state within a vassal state. Right. And the ban, the viceroy, if you like, of Croatia, Jelicic, he's got ambitions for Croatia. And the Kaiser quietly gives him the nod to invade Hungary. This is the first of four campaigns. The war is a year. There are four campaigns conveniently divided into autumn, winter, spring, and summer. And the legal situation changes a bit. The political situation changes a bit. The military, military situation changes a lot with each of these campaigns. The Croatian invasion is the autumn campaign. So 40,000 Croats invade Hungary, which doesn't have its own army to speak of. It's got National Guard, and it's got 10,000 men who've just been formed into what's called the Honved, the Home Defense Force. That is the core of Hungary's, what will be Hungary's own army. So let me piggyback on that thought. Uh, the Austrian military is the way it is uh, due to the melding of all these different ethnicities and languages into the company or the unit, right? Yeah, well, they're not mixed into companies. The it tended to be a regiment would have a local district. They were regimental district, regiments of Hungarians, regiments of Slovaks, etc., raised in each local district. And then, of course, the empire would uh, sensibly send the Hungarians to go and police Italy or Bohemia, and it would send the Slovaks to go and uh, keep things quiet in Transylvania. So, so nobody would be policing their own home, right? Yeah. And then Austria, the, their military isn't considered one of the best anyway. It was in Napoleonic times, but now, as we get later into the century, it's not uh, doing what it's supposed to, right? Yeah, well, it doesn't, it doesn't do much for 30 years, does it? it in, in 1815, I guess it's pretty good. I mean, by 1815, everyone has worked out how you use muskets and smoothbore mm -hmm. cannon. Okay. Uh, it, that's the apogee of Napoleonic tactics, and, and that's what the, they're still using the same textbook in 1848. But the army, the personnel, it's, it's ossified. The generals who are running it in 1848, they've all been lieutenants or captains in 1815. Uh, they've had an eye put out by a Cossack at Leipzig. Or, you know, right. they've met Napoleon when they were captured. That's not much rubbed off, unfortunately, for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, all right. I translated Clausewitz, the 1796 and 99 campaigns. And you get Archduke Charles characterizing the French versus the Austrians. And he says, yeah, the, the French are a revolutionary army and, and they're founded on breaking the rules. So all junior guys, when they're stranded on their own, they use their initiative. They make a decision. They do something rash. 
because they'll take a gamble. They're supposed to break the rules and otherwise it's the guillotine anyway. But the Austrian army is absolutely hidebound by nobility and hierarchy and duty. And they daren't make a decision on their own. So they're paralyzed. And so in the, in the valleys and mountains in Switzerland, they just the, the French run rings around them because these small Austrian units can't decide what to do. But the Austrian army is very reliable on the open plain because it's well drilled and everyone does what they're told. That's that's the story. And it, But it's pervaded with nobility and hierarchy. And that gets worse, not better in the following 30 years, because at least during wartime, you get a few nobles killed off and there's a bit of meritocracy. <laughs> some, right. some good people might rise through the officer corps. But in peacetime, it just festers and it takes decades to get promoted. It, it's actually a significantly higher percentage of nobles in the officer corps than in 1815. But unfortunately for the Austrians, that duty and hierarchy doesn't quite translate in 1848, especially in the first half. Their commander in chief has got three corps commanders under him who will not do what they're told. <laughs> one of them, one of them's super aggressive, and one of them, one of them's panicky and overcautious. When the boss isn't around, which he isn't because he leads from the back. They get together and have little councils of war and decide to tell him what they, they won't do. And it doesn't help that one of his core commanders is Jelisic, this viceroy of Croatia. So he's kind of a king under the command of the field marshal who's only a prince. So that makes it difficult. So that they've got command problems. And yeah, they've, they've got lots of problems, the Austrian army. So I'd imagine that the Hungarians at this time would see this as like an opportunity. Yeah. But politically, there's two types of Hungarians involved in this. You've got kind of constitutional monarchists who are they're nationalist, but they're conservative, if you like. And they're happy having an emperor, but Hungary is a kingdom and it's just joined to Austria through the person of the emperor, who's also the king of Hungary. So they're fine with that. They'll obey their king, but they want some more devolution, some autonomy. They want Hungary to have more authority in its own legal system. They want to Hungarianize all these minorities within the borders, the Romanians and Serbs and Slovaks. So that's the conservative Hungarian's agenda for reform. But then you've got the genuine red radical revolutionaries who, who just want a republic and independence. And so that there are tensions between those factions as the war goes on. And sometimes one side's on top and sometimes the other. The legal niceties of the position the Hungarians find themselves in have quite big effects because early on in the more constitutional phase, you've got lots of officers who stay in what's now the Hungarian army because, oh yeah, we've we've sworn our oath to defend the King of Hungary and that's what we're doing. And Hungary's fighting self-defense and and it's all good. We'll we'll obey the Hungarian government. But then things change and the Hungarian government does some things which uh, alter the legal constitutional position. And there's this wave of people resigning and and the main, the main army is on the verge of disintegrating and the commander-in-chief has to take some steps to sort that out. So, this, yeah, it's the, the politics is complicated as well as the military side. Does that have something to do with the area? Because you got Austria, you got Hungary, you got Serbia, you got the Ottoman Empire. Nothing, nothing there is cut and dry. Everything has to be complicated, right? <laughs> it is, well, it, it's such a patchwork, isn't it? You've got all these different layers. You've got the ethnic patchwork and and it was really a patchwork you know you'd have in in one small district you'd have the romanian village and the hungarian village and the german village and the serb village and the croat village very messy and you've got overlaid you've got this social hierarchy that you know the the serbs and the romanians tended to be bottom of the heap they'd be the serfs 
and then mm-hmm. you'd have German bourgeoisie and you'd have Hungary providing yeoman farmers and nobility and and then there's Austrian overlord nobility on top of that. Uh, you've got religion as well, complicating things. Who's Catholic? Who's Protestant? Who's Greek Orthodox? Uh, who's a Slav? Who's a German? <laughs> yeah. So and, if and then you've and then you've got your your politics as well, with lots of revolution, but also the conservative monarchy and democracy, different shades of democracy. Yeah, so it's all going on. So so let's say this: if you're France or Prussia, mm-hmm. if you're Russia or the Turks. You're seeing opportunity in Austria, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Just because it's so divided. Yes. Yeah. And uh, sure, people might see opportunities to take a chunk, but then you've also got the people who are wary of, do we really want to smash this up? Like, for instance, Britain. And the Hungarians early on were quite hopeful. Oh, Britain and France will, will want to see Austria taken down a peg and they'll, they'll see the justice of our cause. But actually, Britain, the main thing Britain wanted was A, stability and B, uh, a, a counter to Russian power in the Balkans. Right. Well, they didn't want a weak Austria for that reason. I think Prussia would want that as well. Uh, well, Germ- Prussia and North Germany, they've got their own problems. In 1848, there's plenty of revolution going around in Germany. And there's a Frankfurt parliament, which has a vote pretty much across all Germany, including Austria's German provinces. And they come up with a constitution for a new Germany. At one point, the Austrians run up this new German flag outside their barracks and state buildings, but only for half an hour. It's kind of a, a nod towards this constitution, but uh, yeah, we're, we're not really going along with it. There are people who want to see Austria taken down, but there are others who aren't sure, and, and it's, it's a bit scary for the other great powers after these 30 years of peace. There's so much scary going on. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get back to the details of the Hungarian Revolution, but there's a piece that you touched on regarding England. Yeah. You said that England wanted to have the status quo. Then in that case, how did they feel about Russia getting involved with Austria regarding the Hungarian Revolution? Russia sends troops, they get involved. That kind of challenges the status quo. Well, I can quote you. Um, Palmerston, who was foreign minister at the time, said, finish it, but finish it quickly. So he was okay the Russians got the okay from Britain to do it, so long as they did it quickly. Uh, France, France was busy having revolutions of its own, right? And it's in 1848 that uh, I think the, the king gets kicked out, and then there's a brief um, democratic period, republic, and then Napoleon III becomes emperor. But I would imagine that the French and the English would be a little uneasy because of an Austrian-Russian alliance via the status quo and the balance of power in Europe, right? Yeah, well, yes and no, because Britain's increasingly a a colonial power now, isn't it? And it's certainly interested in maritime trade. And Austria and Russia, they're they're mostly landlocked. They're they're not significant navally. So long as as, uh, Russia doesn't get Constantinople then we're fine. (laughs) So I'm speaking with Chris Pringle, the editor of the book, Hungary, 1848, the winter campaign by Hellion and company publishers. You can get it on the website, go there now. Now, Chris, you talked about the Croats invading Hungary and that was the autumn campaign. What about the spring and the summer? Yeah. Well, they're going to come up in the, the sequel, the next book, which is with Hellion at the moment and should come out later this year. That's Hungary 1849, the summer campaign. Which you'll be on to talk about, I know. (laughs) Yes, please. Um, Yeah, it's a war of two halves or war of four quarters. In the first half, um, 
the autumn and winter campaign, and, and then the spring campaign, the Hungarians ultimately kick the Austrians out of Hungary almost entirely. Uh, the Austrians don't mention the spring campaign at all because that's the period when the Hungarians are really on top. They win some major victories and the Austrians skedaddle with the tails between their legs. The Austrians change commander-in-chief. Uh, the, the first one was a bit too diffident, couldn't control his corps commanders, like I said. They bring in this guy who's been really tough in Italy, Julius Heinau, who's got himself the nickname the Hyena of Brescia, because in Brescia he put down the uprising brutally, he flogged noble women, he, he, he made sure they knew who was in charge. This guy is, is hardcore, he's tough, he doesn't put up with any nonsense. He starts his campaign by executing some Hungarian officers who've been taken prisoner, and he carries on from there. And he's got the Russians on his side who send a quarter of a million men to help. From the point the Russians arrive, the arithmetic makes it inevitable the Hungarians are going to lose. Before that happens, they do try a kind of Napoleon 100 days effort. They know these two allied armies, the Austrians, the Russians, are going to hook up and beat them. So they have one last go at beating the Austrians before the Russians show up. And there's a battle at a place uh, no one's ever heard of. It's in Slovakia these days. It's called Pered. But it's remarkable how many ways uh, this battle is similar to Waterloo. <laughs> you've, you've got the soggy terrain slowing the, Aust the Hungarians down like it did the French. Like Napoleon, having to make do with a fresh set of commanders instead of his usual familiar guys. And the Hungarian commander-in-chief, Gergely has got all new corps commanders, so the machine isn't operating properly. It's really, there's so many parallels. It's, it's interesting. So being a war gamer, how do you game this? You're even the author of Bloody Big Battles. Oh, for sure. So how, do, how does Chris Pringle game the Hungarian Revolution? Well, my thing is the big battles. I, I'm most interested in generals' decisions. Uh, I've commanded a platoon. I'm not interested in <laughs> doing that right. again on the tabletop, really. Yeah. Um, but, but the kind of decisions generals make and fighting an entire battle on your six-foot-by-four table, that's what I want to do, and that's what BBB rules, bloody big battles. Right. That's what you can do. You can fight 250,000 men, Koenigretz, or Solferino, or Leipzig. You can, you can do it in an evening. For the Hungarian War of Independence, I said it was a big war. It, it is a big war, and there's probably 15, maybe 20 battles of at least 15,000 men aside. So division division actions plus. There's about 10 that are core size or bigger, 30,000 plus aside. The biggest, you've got 60 or 70,000 Hungarians on one side and similar mm -hmm. amount of allies. So you're getting towards Gettysburg size. The casualties are much lighter. That's an interesting one to try and work out why, but there are big battles. But if skirmish is your thing or brigade-sized actions, right. there's a ton of those and some really interesting situations because of those, the patchwork of nationalities and you've got guerrilla warfare and odd little episodes, people snatching officers and, and hussars riding into town just to run up the Hungarian flag and cock a snook. You could have a lot of fun. Now, just a second ago, you talked about the, the lightness of the casualties. Why, why do you think that that happens? Is it just, is it like uh, people in the movies who don't know how to use a Vickers machine gun or is, <laughs> or is it just bad shots or tactics or what? No, I think there's tactics and there's troop density and troop density is quite an important one. 
because, all right, start with the tactics. Mm -hmm. These are well-established tactics. The first thing you do is you'll have an artillery artillery duel for an hour. Right. You rumble up your guns and you try and win that firefight with your guns. Soften the enemy up with battle fatigue more than casualties. Just being under fire is tough on troops, Right. even if there aren't too many being knocked over. So you soften them up like that. And then when, when you judge you've done it enough and the time is right, that's when you send in the assault columns and your cuirassiers, if you're the Austrians. And if you're on the receiving end of this, and of course, <laughs> both armies are working from the same manual, right? Because the, the Hungarians have all served in the Austrian army. You know what's coming, and the troop density is low, so there aren't that many reserves behind you. Hungary is mostly flat and open, so you can worry about your flanks as well. As soon as people see it going against them, they're already thinking of getting out, and they don't usually stick around for a big tough fight. But after the first village bastion falls, then okay, we, we're going to lose here, so let's not lose badly. Right. I think that's. That's the answer. So usually the, the losses are 1% or 2%. Occasionally, uh, someone really gets a kicking and takes 10% or more casualties, but that's uncommon. The other interesting point you just made was that both sides are using the same manual. They come from the same army college. They came from the same thinking. So that's got to be tough on both sides. Yeah, yeah. The, the Hungarians have to adapt a bit because they've got a lot more um, newly raised troops. They fumble around a bit at times, but yeah, it's it's two halves of the same army, really. And you even get cases like there's there's an engagement where one Hungarian cavalry regiment is facing an Austrian cavalry regiment, and before they charge each other, the two commanding officers have a duel. This is classic stuff, and they know each other. <laughs> they know each other. Uh, <laughs> so so let's just do it ourselves. Nice. So how'd that turn out? Uh, well, the smart money was in, on the bigger, stronger Austrian, but the Hungarian won that one. <laughs> but they still yeah. continued the battle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Austrian got killed and, and then the um, Austrians were put to flight. You know, another thought I had is how, how does the rest of Austria feel about what the Hungarians are doing? Well, uh, the, the Hungarians don't have many friends, put it that way. The Slovaks are probably the best friends in terms of numbers, how many fight on the Hungarian side rather than against them. Yeah, there's a lot of Slovaks in the Hungarian ranks and in the Slovak, the, the predominantly Slovak inhabited areas, there isn't the kind of insurgency and atrocities that you get at the other end of the country because down in the south and east, it's pretty evil. The Croats and Serbs, particularly the, the Serbs and Romanians in Transylvania, all these underclass serfs who've resented their Hungarian overlords, who they've had for centuries, I guess. They see their chance. There's serious insurgency, lots of guerrilla warfare, hundreds of villages burned, tens of thousands of people killed, ethnic cleansing. Oh, it's, it's all happening back then. Yeah, the, the Romanians and the Serbs and the Croats are no, mostly not the Hungarians' friends. There's an effort late in the war to bring them on side, um, by giving more civil rights and the Hungarians raise a bit of a Romanian legion, but it's token and it doesn't fight. It doesn't doesn't get that far. Uh, there's an, a, Politically, there's an episode during the war where they come close to a rapprochement with the Romanians, a deal, but then a, a Hungarian officer does a, an attack that he shouldn't have and it all goes out the window and it's back to 
hostilities and atrocities as usual. But there are there are representatives among the Hungarian generals. There's there are ones who are of Serb origin or Croat origin uh, or German origin, uh, and among those who get executed at the end, which they do a lot of the martyrs of Arad, thirteen generals get executed pretty much everyone's represented and then later the russians get involved so how how the russians the russians are always getting involved with everything so how the russians getting involved in this uh, well it's to do with this concert of europe post napoleonic keeping the lid on things in 1833 i think they made a deal the treaty of munchengretz i think it was between the tsar and the kaiser they said yeah, we've both got problems. Russia's just had had to quell a rebellion in Poland in 1831. Maybe we'll have some kind of trouble in Austria. We don't want to have to deal with this alone. Let's make a deal. If you need help, we'll help you out and vice versa. So in April or thereabouts of 1849, when the war is going badly against the Austrians and they're being kicked out of Hungary, the Kaiser, who really doesn't want to have to do this because it, it's embarrassing to ask, but he doesn't have a choice because he can't win on his own. The Kaiser goes to the Tsar and he says, you know that deal we made back in 1833? Uh, I need to call in that favour, please. And the Tsar is is cut up for that. He's keen. He sees an opportunity and he commits about a quarter of his whole army quarter of a million men. And that's saying something because that was considered one of the one of the best armies, right? Of its time? I I guess for its sheer size. Right. It was it wasn't subtle. It's big and it's got a lot of guns. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just a big blunt instrument coming at you. Pop pop pop, right? Right. Yeah. It it doesn't end up doing much fighting in Hungary as it happens. Essentially, well, the Hungarians do get beaten in Transylvania, mostly by Russians, but the main Russian army only fights one proper battle and doesn't do particularly well in that. Spends most of its time chasing this phantom, uh, a Hungarian force a third of its size that's being just brilliantly maneuvered actually through the Russian army and behind the back of it. And they're always a decision cycle behind the Russians and that they've got corps doing yo-yos and loop-the-loops and swerving across each other's lines of march trying to catch the Hungarians and who are diverting an army three or four times their size that gets to do very little. So in the book, Hungary, 1848, the winter campaign, you're editing this or somebody else wrote it, you edited it. How'd this work out? It's mm -hmm. a translation of the Austrian semi-official history. Gotcha. Which, uh, and as is the Hungary 1849 is also a translation of the history of the second half. The winter campaign, it's it's a whitewash job because they lost. So, right. so it's taken from the uh, Austrian point it, of view. It's the Austrian point of view. It's, they compiled, it's compiled from the Austrian official records and from the Hungarian ones that they captured. And they set all these Hungarian officer prisoners of war to translating it for the Austrian editor. Uh, the, f the first editor compiled a history that was too honest and critical of the Austrian effort. So they binned that and they brought in another editor to whitewash <laughs> it. <laughs> they'll never so, ask uh, him to do that again <laughs> yeah so johan nobly does a nice whitewash job and is very polite and then i come in and translate it into english and i check some hungarian and other sources as well and i add 300 or so footnotes just so you know what's really going on or at least you see alternative points of view so it's okay. it, you don't just get the whitewash job you hopefully get a fuller picture than that so while you were translating this book, what what couple things stuck out that you kind of it kind of put a light bulb over your head? You kind of went, "Oh man, that is interesting." Oh, all, all sorts of things, it's terrain and weapons and commanders. 
on the terrain have you ever heard of ship mills floating mills yes i have yeah because well i hadn't <laughs> and i did not realize that before the industrial revolution all the major rivers of europe were covered th with these bloody things right tethered mills which would mill your flour or whatever you needed to mill we had some of those in the states also I, yeah i figured so. you must have because you've got mm -hmm. big rivers haven't you <laughs> a few but they had hundreds of these things and um they got used a lot for bridging because like the danube particularly there was not there was not a permanent bridge between vienna and budapest so if you wanted to cross the danube you needed a pontoon bridge and it had to be a big one and it, there were other substantial rivers as well so what you would do is you'd round up the nearest 15 ship mills and right. <laughs> tie them together and stick some planks between them and there's your bridge so that was one revelation to me uh rockets if you want to talk about weaponry they were used a lot by both sides. Your Congreve-type rocket, um, as modified by a, an Austrian. So did they have significant effect, do you think? There were times when they, were, they had significant effect, yeah. What was really striking was their mobility. They got used a lot for advance guards or to go with cavalry on raids. Because, hmm. well, you know, it, provided you're not taking a whole ton of warheads, right, the actual right, right. kit... The tr your tripod and, and a few rockets, that's pretty light, it's pretty mobile, and it doesn't take long to set up. And then in action, there were times when if they were being fired up a hill and the hill was just the right inclination, then their grazing fire was scary. They defeated um, artillery batteries sometimes, mm. and they were, they're good for setting stuff on fire. Bridges, defended buildings, villages, yeah, they were pretty useful. Sir, if you're game in this period, having a, you know cavalry with rockets that's cool also uh a good scenario might be to involve some of these ship mills right yeah and there, there were you can have your guys who have to swim across and obtain them from the other right. side so it'd be decent objectives in a game and then with the uh the cavalry with rockets that just screams adding them to a to a unit right yeah and you get flying columns of serb insurgents who mm -hmm. travel around on wagons and right su surprise the hungarians with their speed in that respect oh there was an amazing episode it's like the mines of moria you could do a scenario based on it at one point up in the northwest in slovakia in the mountains division a hungarian division under their best general, Gergay. He's trying to escape from the Austrians who are converging from various directions, and he's trapped in this mountain valley. There's an old mine, abandoned mine, under the mountain. He clears the mountain, and 5,000 men and their kit travel through this mine <laughs> under the mountain and escape. Yeah, it's novels, it's stuff of novels, not history books. Ah, Chris, you're just giving me all kinds of scenario ideas. Oh, my, my, you're making my head, <laughs> you're making my head go nutty. Listen, while you're doing this book, all right, so you're doing this translation, what else stuck out at you? What what else did you say, oh, wow, that's that's interesting? I enjoyed reading about the personalities. I've already talked about the Austrian side, but on the Hungarian side, <laughs> it's amazing the fallings out they had. You, you've got the political divisions I already mentioned, right? but then also you've just got people who don't get on, particularly when when you're losing, it turns into recriminations and blaming each other. And, and people aren't shy of speaking out and, and being very public about what an idiot this guy is. And um, you've got near mutinies on the Hungarian side when, they, when the officers lose confidence in, in a particular general and they raise petitions to get the guy replaced. That, there's that kind of thing going on. I was, I was quite struck by that. Was there an individual? that uh 
that really stuck in your head? Oh, several. Well, there's a couple of poles we could talk about. Uh, Absolutely. Complete, complete contrast. And they're both old guys. They're veterans of the Polish Revolution of 1830-31. And they've, they've been exiled since then, of course. So they rally to the revolutionary cause in Hungary. And th there are two Polish legions raised in Hungary from exiles and, and sympathizers and people who escape and prisoners of war. So the, the good Polish general is Papa Bem, Josef Bem, and he's he fights the war in Transylvania. Basically, he's the man in charge in Transylvania. Is he 70 years old, I think? But he's like like the 25 year old Napoleon in 1796 in the mountains, in northern Italy. It's that kind of campaign. He's got small forces, but he force multiplies by sheer maneuverability. He sends 5000 National Guards away to another Hungarian army because he doesn't want the men because they're not well trained enough to keep up with his hardcore regular veterans because he want he doesn't want lots of troops he wants good troops and he's races north and south repelling Russian column here and an Austrian column there and the, the allies the imperialists they just have no clue where he is and they're in fear and they're always worried about his, their communications because he's always striking behind them as well so he keeps them at bay with smaller forces and actually kicks them out at one point entirely from Transylvania. Now he's remarkable, uh, though he has his critics, but he's remarkable. And then on the other side of the coin, you've got the disastrous Dembinsky. This guy Dembinsky gets at one point actually made commander in chief during the winter campaign on the Hungarian side. And the reason for that is partly political. You've got this tension between the conservatives and the radicals and neither side wants the other side to have their man as commander in chief. So they get a neutral, a Pole, who isn't identified with any Hungarian political party. And also he's got a great reputation that he made during 1831 when he did this glorious long retreat in Lithuania. And retreating seems to be what he's good at. And he spends all war trying to polish his reputation by doing more retreating, it seems. And the only time he advances, he loses badly. <laughs> so there's some characters. But but then the best the best Hungarian general, Artur Gergely. This guy, Gergely, um, yeah, he is brilliant. He does amazing maneuvers, very rapid, bamboozling the Russians in particular, as well as evading the Austrians, but also good in attack. And and he's organized. I mean, it's not it's not just an inspired. Oh, I'll stick a pin in the map here. He is very organized. Good staff work. He's not playing games. He's tough. He and and the the other good Hungarian general Klapka. That there are moments when they they turn their own guns on their guys to stop them retreating. They get the reserves to fire a volley at them to stop them retreating. Uh, when some hussars are on the verge of mutiny, he decimates them in the literal meaning of the term kills every 10th man these are these are tough guys they're serious but they're very professional and it's remarkable that they are so professional because they're very young and this is a case with all the hungarian generals mostly they're very young and it's a bit like your revolutionary french back in the 1790s mm -hmm. where you've got the talented young guys rising to the top because that's all we've got now these are very young leaders they're very young uh, commanders and they they got to be in their what their twenties their thirties. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, well, they they have I think all served in the Imperial Army. Yes, and maybe they've been captains, majors, 
the odd one might have been a colonel, but but mostly captains or majors are the ones stay on the Hungarian side, right? And who, as the war goes on and the army expands, of course, well, you don't have many Austrian generals to be generals, right? Right. So right. you have to promote your majors and colonels to be generals. The reason I ask is because you, while they were stuck in the Austrian army, they had to follow the book. They had to follow exactly what was going on. They had to, they had to follow their rote learning. Now they're being asked to think out of the box, to think for themselves. Uh, Gergai, for instance, he, he, he is a smart guy. He's, he gets his doctorate as a chemist after he leaves the, the military. And yeah, he's got this clarity of vision, the strategic vision which he certainly never got any opportunity to exercise when he was a, a captain in the noble guard in Vienna. Um, but though he, he learned a few different trades as well, he'd, he'd, he'd served or trained in engineering, cavalry and infantry. So that probably helps. And the Hungarian system threw up some duffers as well as some, uh, you, you grab the nearest person who looks like, or sounds like they know what they're talking about. And then you find that they don't. And, you have to sack him. So there's a bit that's, of that. That's been my whole life. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got us this far, hasn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. So so after this is all said and done, what happens to these Hungarian commanders? Does the Austrian army embrace them or do they, they kick them to the curb? After the, at the end of the war, really, we see both sides of that displayed. Initially, the retribution is swift and harsh and bloody. And the, the Austrian commander-in-chief, Hainau, the hyena of, hyena of Brescia, executes 13 Hungarian generals. Gergai, the main man, who for the last week of the war is dictator of Hungary, he's the one who surrendered to the Russians with the last field army, and he gets let off. And this makes him a very contentious figure in Hungarian history. Some think he's a traitor. I don't think so, but my opinion doesn't really matter. So Gergai doesn't get executed, but 13 uh, generals do. Some hundreds of other lesser persons get executed. Lots of people get sent to prison. 25, 30,000 former Hungarian troops and officers get forcibly conscripted into the Austrian army. And most of them are stuck there for, I don't know, eight or 10 years. as, as a long time. Lots of people sent to prison. Lots of people have their property confiscated or their assets frozen, aren't allowed to have government jobs or practice their professions. There's a lot of repression, but only for a couple of years. It's really interesting how fairly suddenly and fairly soon the iron hand relaxes and we put a bit of velvet glove back on. And although there was that initial retribution, I think given what a civil war it was, it wasn't that harsh by the standards of a lot of civil wars. And the Hungarians, I think, were treated more as errant children than evil traitors. So they were chastised and disciplined a bit. But really, they're, they're our children or our brothers, you might say. And we, we don't want to be nasty to them. We want to be nice to them. So now we'll be nice to them. And then there's, there's an epilogue, what, 16 years later, after the Austro-Prussian War, 1866, well, there's been the Italian War of 1859 right. as well. So the Austrians get beaten. Their empire gets beaten in 59. It gets beaten by the Prussians in 66. After that, uh, to deal with the internal problems of the empire after such severe kicking, the empire essentially gives Hungary almost all the political demands of 1848. It's 
the compromise of 1867 is when Hungary gets the autonomy it wants. And that's really when Austria hyphenates and becomes Austria-Hungary. Right. Hungary becomes a, an equal on a, on a par with Austria. So let me go back real quick here because you said something and it just stuck in my head. The general who gave up, who ended the Hungarian Revolution, gave up to the Russians and did not give up to the Austrians. You're right to pick up on that. That was a very deliberate political point. I am surrendering to the Russians. The Austrians were not able to beat us. We are surrendering to the Russians. And the Russians had a lot of respect for Gergai. <laughs> so that must have went over real well in Vienna, right? Yeah, but, you know, they, they couldn't execute him. They couldn't execute him. And at the palace, um, we haven't mentioned, actually, the Kaiser Franz Joseph. I mm -hmm. mentioned Kaiser Ferdinand, who was the Kaiser at the start of the war. But early on, in December 48, he abdicates. And the Kaiser who takes over is Franz Joseph, who at that time is 18. And this is the same Franz Joseph who leads Austria into the First World War and sees out virtually the end of the empire. So what's Franz Joseph's reaction to all this? Well, he's 18 and he's put, not putting up with any crap from Hungarian revolutionaries, is he? He's putting his stamp on, on everything. Yeah. And so from that moment on, although on the Hungarian side, they've still got these hopes of uh, a negotiated solution and political settlement and let's try and be law abiding and constitutional. As soon as he's emperor, it's it's not going to happen. Right. As soon as he's emperor, he's got his field marshal putting together his army to invade for the winter campaign. The one player in the field we haven't talked about is Turkey. What is Turkey's reaction to everything that they see going on? The Turks really are totally passive in this. And I guess they're most worried about the Russians. And the Russians have beaten them up 20 years ago in 1828, 29, and they occupied the Danubian prin principalities, Romania, um, well, Moldavia and Wallachia, mm -hmm. is, has got Russian armies in it sitting on the Danube. The Turks, they've got troops there as well in, in Romania. It's kind of strange situation. What's the closest it gets? Late in the war, the good Polish general, Papa Bem, in desperation really, raids into eastern Romania, out of Transylvania, and he hopes to stir up the Romanians there into revolutionary rebellion against both the Ottomans and the Turks, or maybe start spark a war between the Russian between the Russians and the Turks. Right. But he has zero response from the locals mm. and doesn't tangle with the Ottomans or get any help. Also, late in the war, when it comes to every man for himself, and the Hungarians are losing, and you don't want to be captured by the Austrians. Various. Hungarian columns escape across the border into Ottoman Romania, and they just get interned by the Turks. Hmm. But of course, you do have the Crimean War sequel, don't you? There are ramifications. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Russians were really counting on the Austrians to be that balance against uh, England and France and the Turks in the Crimean War, and it just didn't, it didn't materialize, right? And it doesn't happen. And in fact, the more likely intervention from that quarter, if I remember right, the Hungarians, who um, resent the Russians even more than the Austrians by that stage, I think there's a Hungarian legion of 5,000 men musters in Transylvania and is gung-ho for going over the border to fight against the Russians. Right. But the Austrian authorities sensibly restrain it. But I guess that's as close as it comes. Also, do you know about the Hungarian exile generals in the Ottoman army? 
No. Oh, let me tell you about the Hungarian exile generals in the Ottoman army. Please. <laughs> I think there were several. Um, I can name two. One was a divisional commander. Maybe he, yeah, he was, just, he was a division commander called Coleman. And he and a rather more senior and interesting guy by the name of Richard de Beaufort Guillon. And this guy, Guillon, he's English by birth. He's one of your classic Victorian English adventurers, I guess. I think he serves in some continental army beforehand, but then ends up offering his services to Hungary. And he becomes a corps commander. And he's a pretty good corps commander in the Hungarian army. Does a good job. Wins some victories. Escapes to Turkey and ends up in the Caucasus during the Crimean War. He and Coleman are in the Caucasus and Guion becomes chief of staff to the Ottoman commander on the Caucasus front. And there is one major battle on the Caucasus front in the Crimean War, Kurudera, at which right, Guion devises this, this excellent plan, which the Hungarian army could have carried out brilliantly with its lightning manoeuvres under Gergai. It's a night approach march from two directions so you do a night pincer movement and catch the Russian army unawares at dawn. Unfortunately, this is the Ottoman army, not the Hungarian army. So half of it turns up and is pretty much beaten by the time the other half turns up. And that's the war lost on the Crimean front, <laughs> on the Caucasus front. You know, it is quite interesting to have these exiles put in charge of your army. You know, if you're like the Sultan and you're saying to yourself, hey, you know what I could do? I could take these uh, these Bulgarians, these Hungarians, these Czechs, these Polish generals and put them in charge of my my Turkish troops. Uh, and there, therefore, I would have a chance to win against the Russians. That doesn't that doesn't say a lot about your faith in your own generals, right? Well, if, if you're the Sultan, what are your choices? Look at who commanded the Ottoman force in the Crimea. It wasn't a it wasn't a proper general. It was a guy who'd been in charge of a tannery before. I guess that the Ottoman hierarchy, their nobility is, is a bit like, is it like the Chinese Communist Party nowadays where you, you got this triangle of you command something military and then something industrial and then something academic educational. And if you're any good, you get promoted again to the industry and then to the military. So you're not, they're not dedicated military professionals, particularly. Right. They just... and, and they're not being promoted on merit because it's the Ottoman Empire, not the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to go and be at the front anyway. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so let's import a foreigner who A, knows what they're doing, and B, we don't care if he gets killed. And they do know what they're doing, these Hungarians. And you, you get a lot of them in the civil war in, over in the States as well. Hundreds and hundreds of Hungarian exiles join predominantly the Union forces because of notions of liberty and republicanism, I think. So you, you might think they'd have some sympathy for secession as well. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's, there's a surprisingly high proportion of them become colonels and even generals in the Union army. So they're, so they're just going everywhere like a mercenary, right? So the book is called Hungary 1848, The Winter Campaign. Now, you said that you're, there, there's going to be an autumn and a, a spring and a summer book also. You got a translation there as well, right? The two Austrian histories, which we're publishing under the title, one, one is already published, 1848, the winter campaign. The second one in press, Hungary, 1849, the summer campaign. Those two actually cover the whole war. So nice. you've got the autumn and spring campaigns included and a bit of prequel and epilogue as well. Those two give you the whole history, very detailed from the Austrian point of view, plus a ton of footnotes. Then, uh, you heard it here first, Helion is also publishing the English translation of 
the foremost modern Hungarian history of the whole war by Professor Robert Herman, the foremost authority on the war, who has kindly let me and a Hungarian friend, Dr. Peter Bayer, translate his work. Uh, and so the three of us together are in the final stages of preparing that to send mm -hmm. into Helion. Well, that's excellent. So nice. there'll be this set of three books will really give us Anglophones all you need to know to get launched on the Hungarian Revolution, War of Independence, and get some soldiers on the tabletop and fight some interesting battles, or just learn some fascinating corners of neglected history. So I have been joined today by Chris Pringle former officer of the British Territorial Army and an academic publisher. He co-edited the English translation of Clausewitz's Napoleon's 1796 Italian Campaign, and he is author of Bloody Big Battles, Rules for Wargaming the Late 19th Century, supporting blog and also the Facebook group. He is the editor of Hungary 1848, the winter campaign for which we've been conversing about today. You can pick up Hungary 1848, the winter campaign at Hellion and Company Publishers website or any major retailers. Now coming up, it's time for a new game aid, scenario builder, and a new top five. That's next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, damn. So I'm going to get a little serious for a second. If you're like me and you're disturbed by what's going on in Ukraine and you're thinking, what can I do? This happens a lot when the world is faced with tragedies like this. You and I have friends in Ukraine, fellow gamers, artists, sculptors, businesses that we've come to know over the years. And outside of wishing them well and hoping they are safe, there are ways you can help. For instance, UNICEF has set up a site to help children. Nova Ukraine helps with humanitarian aid. There is doctorswithoutborders.org, rescue.org, and icrc.org, all of whom are helping people in Ukraine. The one which I most admire is World Central Kitchen, wck.org. They've helped in Haiti, in the Middle East, in Asia, anywhere where people need food. And they're set up right now in Ukraine and around Ukraine to help. I'm not using this platform to ask you to help. I'm using this platform to provide you information if you decide you want to help. Hey, what the blaze is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. Nice punch. This is Shot and Shield. And shield. I just want to make sure to say thank you very much for listening to the Shot and Shield podcast. And it's time to reveal the top five for who revolted most significantly and reveal the new top five question. And the Lord spake, saying, Shalt thou count to three? No more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two. Accepting that thou then proceed to three. It is time for the top five reveal. Five is right up. The last question was, what was the most interesting revolution of the 19th century? So let's get to it. As voted on you by the Shot and Shield listener in the Facebook group and on Twitter. So here we go. Number five. The 1831 Polish Uprising 
as suggested by Nuno Piera. And thank you, Nuno, for that suggestion. Number four, the Second Carlist War. Number three, and as heard earlier in the show, Chris Pringle gave us a great rundown of the Hungarian Revolution of 1848. So that is your number three entry. Number two, the Indian Mutiny of 1857. And by a slim margin, very slim. Number one, the Boxer Rebellion. And that is your top five for what was the most interesting revolution of the 19th century. And I want to thank all of you who participated in the top five. So now before I announce the new top five, if you have a suggestion for a top five, you can send me a DM through Facebook or Twitter or email me at shotandshield at gmail.com. I'm up for suggestions. Anything you, you got you want to see in the top five, bring it on. Now, this question is all wet. Oh, 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 I know, I know, it's stupid. Anyway, here we go. I'm looking for the top five most significant naval battles of the 19th century, not including anything Napoleonic. So if you bust out Trafalgar, I'm going to be like, what? Who? Where? Never heard of it. Anyway, here are my starters. The Battle of Lissa, 1866, the Third Italian Unification. The Battle of Sinope, 1843, Crimean War. The Battle of Port Arthur, 1904, Russo-Japanese War. I'm going to throw this one in there. The Battle of Hampton Roads, 1862, Monitor vs. Merrimack, U.S. Civil War. The Battle of Manila Bay, 1898, during the Spanish-American War. The Battle of Gerontus, 1824, the Greek War for Independence. The Battle of Heligoland, 1864, the Second Schwelzwig War. And the Battle of Iquique, 1879, the War of the Pacific. So the new top five question on Facebook and Twitter is, what was the most significant naval battle of the 19th century? Those are my starters. You want to add something else? Do it. And also get your votes in today and hear the results in the next Shot and Shield Supercast. On Twitter, at Shot and Shield, and in the Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast War Game Group. Coming up next, Scenario Builder is coming up on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I, too, dream of peace. You don't think I, too, yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. Thank you for continuing to listen to the Shot and Shield Supercast. As you listen on your favorite podcast app, where you're listening on Ghana, where you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music, maybe you're listening on um, Google Podcasts. Either way, thank you very much for supporting the show. So let's hit it. It's time for Scenario Builder. Time to get pencil and paper ready. Get out your notebook. Get out your pen. Get out your pencil. Sharpen it. Be ready. It's time for Scenario Builder. Building better worlds. In this episode, Scenario Builder, I'm dropping a scenario called Mapping. Now, the object is that your European trained field force must map each square foot 
of the tabletop and protect the non-combatants with you. The scenario is to be played on a 4x4 table. If you want to play it on a bigger table, that's up to you. It just means a longer game. That's all I'll say. So here's how it runs down. Your European trained field force must spend at least two turns inside each square foot of the table until more than 75% of the table has been visited. That's probably about 12 square feet. Now, to make matters worse for the European trained field force, each square foot, you might be threatened by a tribal force. Each time your force enters a new square foot, your opponent rolls four six-sided dice, a Yahtzee of any number, and you get attacked. This is a longer game. It should take at least 24 turns if everything runs perfectly. So plan on setting aside some time for this one. All right. So let's talk about your field forces. As always, I use the men who would be kings rule set. However, if you want to go and use a different rule set, that's fine. Not a big deal. You just have to make some adjustments. So firstly, your European trained field force gets 48 points. All of it is cavalry or mounted infantry. No elites, no cannon, and they must be European or European trained forces. And also, you're going to need a wagon or four horses with four figures to represent the spies, cartographers, archaeologists as the non-combatants. They're pivotal in this. So you can use four horses or you can use you know, a wagon or whatever. It doesn't really matter, but you need four, four figures because these guys got to survive. So let's move on to the tribal field force. Each tribal field force is made up of 16 points. Every time Yahtzee is rolled, you get 16 points to work with. It has to be tribal infantry. No cavalry, no cannon, no elites. Now, as far as the gameplay goes, when a Yahtzee is rolled, the tribal field force appears in the same square foot as your European-trained field force. Not on top of them, but about eight inches away from the main line. You work that out. That's up to you how they appear, but they're going to have to, you got to give your European trained field force some space. After that, you use the standard men who would be kings tables for attack and morale and movement. So how does your European trained field force win? Easy. As I said earlier, at least 75% of the table has to be visited and at least 50% of your non-combatants have to survive. How does the tribal player win? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Eliminate more than 50% of the non-combatants, or you have to force the European field force to morale out and leave the field. That's it. There you go. That's it for this episode scenario builder called Mapping. If you have any questions or you need clarifications, please hit me up on the Shot and Shield podcast wargame group. I'm going to have this pinned like I do all of the scenarios. I got them pinned to the group. Coming up, we're going to be digging into the archives in my audio archaeological segment on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, oh, honor is satisfied. God clearly preserves you for greatness. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. 
This is Shot and Shield. Honey, ho, pick, pick them. Bernard's your uncle. You can hear the Shot and Shield Supercast on most of your favorite podcast apps like uh, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, Reason, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you very much. Please, I ask you to subscribe or set your notifications so when you get a new podcast, it downloads right away and you're ready to go. Also, you want those notifications set on there so you can hear the bonus episodes because they come, they, they just come out of nowhere. And I got one with Firelock Games that's going to be coming here very soon. And you want to, you want to get notified of that immediately. So please set your notifications. Now it is time for the final shot and shield segment. It's time for us to dig into the audio archives. Thanks to yours truly, Phineas Scott, the audio archaeologist. And in this episode, I have another treat for you from Kipling. It is called The Drums of the Fore and Aft. From 1948, the adventure program called Escape. Here you go. Please enjoy. You are deep in the remote hill country of Afghan, face to face with the fierce Pathan warriors. Trapped into a hopeless fight from which there seems no escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to the north of India and to a battle long remembered, as Rudyard Kipling described it in his famous story, The Drums of the Fore and Aft. When I came out from England to serve as a news correspondent with the British troops on the North Indian border, Regiment number 329A was called the Four and Fit. Princess Herentzelder in Zern Royal Light Infantry. Four and Fit. But now, behind their backs, men call them the Four and Aft. You know, when certain words are shouted in front of other barracks, the troops may come out with belts and fists. But the mere whisper of Four and Aft brings out the men of this regiment with rifles in their hands and murder in their eyes. I think perhaps the story of how the fore and aft got its name may be really more the story of Jakin and Peggy Liu, two of the toughest and most lovable little monsters who ever banged a drum or tooted a fife in a military band. They were both about the same age, with curly hair and the faces of cherubs. And inside were two souls that should have belonged to a pair of devils. Oh, I must have seen them before, of course. But the first occasion I can recall was an informal regimental court the colonel was holding in the orderly room one morning. Piggy and Jakin were there, and they were in trouble, as usual. All right, Sergeant, read the charges. Yes, sir. 
The charge is made by one Smithers, a civilian, that while walking back of the bazaar at 6 p.m. last evening, he was set upon without provocation by two drummers from the core band, known as Jakin and Piggy Lou, and by them was beaten into near insensibility. Fighting again. Go on, Sergeant. Mr. Smithers states further that he was struck down by the two defendants and while lying on the ground was kicked repeatedly in the face and ribs, escaping with his life only through the timely arrival of a detachment of the guard. That's all, sir. Well, what about it, Jacob? Piggy, is this the truth? Oh, yes, sir. We gave him what for, all right. Come. <laughs> Confounded you two little heathens for more trouble than all the rest of the regiment put together. You're hailed in here on charges every time you turn around. I can't very well put you in cells or hang you. Oh, no, sir. We shouldn't watch that at all. <laughs> that will do, Jacob. Yes, sir. All right, Sergeant. Turn them over to the bandmaster and have them pan their hides. Tell them to make it one they'll remember this time. Yes, sir. Begging your pardon, sir, mm. but can't we say nothing in our own defense? That's right, sir. What if a blooming civilian said he'd report you for having a bit of a turn-up with a friend? Suppose he tried to get money out of you, sir, and then... That will do, Piggy. Then you were fighting. Well, only between ourselves, sir, and that don't count. If you'll pardon me, Colonel, this man Smithers does have a reputation for that sort of thing, uh, blackmail, you know. And one thing the boys don't do is lie. It's not that we'd mind it, sir, to be called up by even a corporal. But we can't have no blinking civilians interfering with the business of Her Majesty's regiment. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll forget the birching. You're both confined to quarters for three days. But, sir... And throw away that pipe when you get outside, Piggy. You're too young to be smoking. Yes, sir. All right, dismissed. Confounded Kipling, I don't know what to do with the lads. They're not really bad at heart. And they've never known any home but the army. Where did they come from, by the way? Oh, Jacob is from some back street in London, and Piggy Lou is straight off the Calcutta docks. In both cases, ancestry unknown. Well, they seem loyal enough to the regiment at any rate. They are, and loyal to each other in their own way. I'm inclined to think sometimes they've got more real spirit than all of those new regulars put together. Yes, I'd say you're overloaded with green troops, Colonel. Overloaded? Ninety percent of the regiment were in Manchester factories and Lancashire farms six months ago. Can't make a soldier in that late of time. Any uh, chance of action, Harry, soon? Well, off the record, we'll probably move north in about ten days. Not to the front, of course. We'll give them a few months of guarding communication lines. Let them shake down a bit before they see any real action. Yeah, it's a good idea. It's the only thing to do. There's only one thing certain. This regiment is not ready for action yet. Only don't write that back to your paper. <laughs> Guards who govern armies seldom choose the wisest plan. On the Afghan border, a large force of patent guerrillas began massing near the Khyber Valley, being held in check temporarily by a regiment of Highlanders and a regiment of native Gurkhas. A week later, the four and fit was ordered to march north, contact the other two regiments, and carry out joint action to disperse the enemy. <laughs> Parade ground and barracks began to hum with preparations for the coming campaign. Privates walked with a new swagger. Subalterns began to snap their salutes and orders. And the young officers nearly shot one another at pistol practice. Battle. 
A glorious word to men who'd never fired a gun at a human being in their entire lives. But to Piggy and Jakin, the excitement was like salt in an open wound. For the band was reduced to 20 men, and the drummer boys were being left behind. Blimey, if I'm going to let him do it to me, Jakin. Me, what's going to have a career in the army? Being left behind like an old boot. And why should you worry? Now you can stay here with that blooming girl of yours. Oh, what's a girl when the regiment's going up to the front? And that's another thing, too. How am I going to explain to her about being left behind with the women? What do you have to explain anything to her for? She's only 13. Oh, I've been telling her I'd get myself a medal when the first campaign come along. Now am I going to do it now, I ask you? Perhaps the drum major will give you a blooming medal for tooting on a fife. I heard him talking to you yesterday. And how was I to stop him? Piggy, he says, why don't you consider making music your career? <laughs> Piggy Lou, the musician, a blooming non-combatant. I won't do it. He can try, but he can't make me. Aha! Uh -huh. When I'm an officer, perhaps I'll invite you in to have a glass of sherry wine on mess night, Mr. Lou. I'll be a blinking officer before you are. I'm going to join up with the regulars just as soon as I'm old enough. Piggy the musician. Ah, <laughs> oh, Stewie. What at the moment I don't feel like fighting even you. I heard in the barracks they're going to take uh, Tom Kidd along. He's to be the bugler. Of course, he's 18, though. That he is. But I can plaster the wall with him any day. And with one hand behind me back. Perhaps we can hit him around a bit. Just enough so he can't bugle no more. You could hold his hands, Piggy, and then I'll kick him in. No, no, no. They, they, they still wouldn't take us. Our reputations aren't what they might be, you know. Oh, well. I'll just leave, stay here, and do a bit of love for myself. With our own regiment going into action? Why, I'll just leave, have my... Hey, look who's coming. It's the blooming colonel herself. And so it is, all alone. You know, Jake and me lad, I think I'll have a little talk with this colonelship. Have you gone there where they eat? Oh, the colonel's a good old beggar. Yeah. Hold me pipe. Blimey. Now we're in fourth again. <clears throat> I, uh, beg your pardon, sir. Eh? Well, Piggy, are the drums in revolt? Am I to be pulled down right here in the open? No, sir. I'd, I'd like the pleasure of a word with you, sir. Hmm? All right, go ahead and have it. I'm asking you, sir. If you fought the world in all of your regiment and it was going off to active duty without you, sir, then how'd you feel? Mm, well, I'm afraid I should feel a bit left out of things. And worse. It's as bad as being a blinking civilian. If you'll pardon me, sir. But that's how Jakin and me feels about it. You've no idea what a campaign can be like. Why, you'd flop on your face in the first 20 miles. No, we wouldn't, sir. We're good at marching. I've told my girl I'd bring her back a middle. I've just got to go. And anyhow, if I stay here, the bandmaster will make a blood... I mean, a blessed musician out of me, sir. I see. I think you could pass a physical... Oh, not the slightest doubt of it, sir. We're both of us very healthy for our age. Please, sir. All right. I suppose it's unheard of for a border regiment to take drummers along an active campaign. But if you get past the medical officer, you can both go along. Blimey! Jacob, did you hear that? We're going up to the front. I mean, thank you, sir. Uh, carry on. Uh, I mean... The regiment marched out of the station two days later, and all those left behind lived in the road that led past the parade ground. 
The band stood by and played them out, waiting to fall in at the foot of the column. And although Jake perspired and beat on his drum manfully to cover up, it was quite evident that Piggy Lou was not with the band. Jake kept glancing at the cedar hedge behind him. And I had a rather good idea why Piggy was being detained. You've got to be awful careful and take real good care of yourself, Piggy. You're so venturesome. I worry all the time. It's odd, Chris. I'll grant you it's odd, but what's a man to do when his regiment's called off to active duty now? Here, give us another kiss. Oh, Piggy. Mmm, that's more like it. You just stayed here like you ought to. You could have had as many as you wanted. If I'd done that, Chris, you wouldn't think anything of me. Like as not. At least I'd add you with me, Piggy. And all the thinking in the world ain't like kissing. And all the kissing in the world ain't like having a medal to wear on the front of your coat. Who cares about a medal? Just stay with me, Piggy, darling. And I'll love you true forever. Aren't you going to do that anyhow, Chris? You said you was. Of course I am. Be lots more comfortable if you stayed here. Oh, don't take on about it, Chris. I'll be coming back. And I'll marry you someday, too, I promise. But when? Years and years, perhaps. Oh, you'll be careful, won't you, Piggy? Oh, man has to take his chances in the army, Chris. Uh, but if it happens, I'll, I'll be thinking of you right to the last. Oh, don't talk like that. Oh, now, here. Give us a kiss. Piggy. Get yourself on over here. We're about to fall in. I've got to go now, Chris, darling. Don't you be forgetting. Oh, I won't ever pick you. I'll make something for you to take with you. Hmm? What's this? It's a button bag. Well, the regular soldiers carry them. I, I put some of my hair in it. Well, now, that's awful kind of you, Chris. I, I guess it ain't made so good, but... I didn't want nobody up there, not even Mum. Oh, I'll carry it right over my heart, so long as I'm alive. Don't say things like that. Peggy, come on. Give us one more kiss now. I can't stay no longer. Oh, Peggy. Goodbye, Chris. Take care of yourself. Goodbye, Peggy. Be careful. Be careful. I'll be coming around to see you, Chris, my darling, when I get back from the war. Well, it's about time. You're lucky we're not both in trouble. You stick your blinking fife in your ugly mouth and blow on it, petticoat chaser. Oh, shut up and beat your drum, soldier, before I decide to pound in your blooming head a bit. Tell the colonel he can shove off now. And so the fallen fit went north to the wars, first by troop train... And then on foot when the last rail ahead left them with a seven-day route march before they'd reached the front up ahead. And during those seven weary days, the regiment began to crack. Men weren't hardened to the long miles of marching. And they found themselves dead tired before the noon of each day. The food was bad and the water was worse. And on the second day, the snipers started in. They would hide in the tumbled rocks of the low brown hills beside the road and wait for the column to pass. And the first sign of one would be a flash and a puff of smoke and some man on the long line of march would die without ever seeing the enemy who killed him. <coughs> and even at night, the tired and nerve-shattered men could find no rest. If anything, the night hours and the dark tents 
were a good deal worse than the daylight hours on the dusty road. Do you boom and gab into the morning, Piggy? I've got to get myself some sleep. As if I ain't marched just as far as you have. Oh, me bloomin' feet's killing me. Serves you bloody well wife for getting us into this. We could have been back at the station living on the fat of the land. And our way to becoming musicians, like as not. In which case, I'd be a-sleeping in a regular bed, having decent Charlie for once. I'm afraid you're not the army type, Jacob. Perhaps I shouldn't have talked my friend the colonel into letting you come. Ah! Yes, sir. You don't have to call a blinking sergeant, sir. That ain't no harm in it. Peggy, that's another one of our sentries got himself killed out there. Beggars can sneak up in the dark without making a sound. And they take their bloody long knives and slice a man open as neat as you please. All right, hold your fire and see what you're shooting at. Well, I wonder what they look like, Piggy. Those are these here pathans. Oh, what's it matter when we can't even carry rifles? I ask you now, Jakin. Look at that. How's a man to get himself a medal when all he's got for a weapon is a blooming fight? <laughs> Late afternoon of the seventh day, weary, savage, and sick, their uniforms dulled and unclean, before and fit rendezvoused with the Highland Brigade. My lads, here comes the new regiment, the four and fit. Four and fit, eh? If I ask what it is they're fit for? <laughs> some of the men bore wounds, and some were stretcher cases. But the real casualty was the regimental morale. These raw conscripts had marched out of their station in the south with a band playing. And somehow they'd imagined that they might march glorious into battle the same way. But no band played when they slogged sullenly into the brigade encampment. Hey, Piggy, think we have found the blinking war lost? What else? Ain't that a full-grown general old colonel you're talking to there? Foreign. Look at them chaps over there that are wearing petticoats. Now, lot you know. They're islanders. And I've heard a man best take no liberties with them. One activity might have aroused the interest of the regiment, as tired as they were. Rifle practice the enemy. And with all 700 rifles blazing together, that's the way they felt. We've had a bit of a tough time as it's coming down, sir. My men have been rather mauled. No chance of a fair return. They only want to go in some place where they can see what's before them. Yeah, I understand, Colonel. I wish I could let you have a few days to recover, but I simply can't spare you right now. There'll be no need of it, sir. All we're wanting is one good night's rest. I see. Well, you can lay your camp area downstroke from the Highlanders, Colonel. And I suggest you call a general inspection before dark. We plan to attack the enemy position at dawn. Beauty you wanted, Piggy. And how much longer do you think they're going to keep us standing here with the bloody daylight barely coming over the hills? Oh, no. We can't have no battle till the blooming general has his morning tea now, can we? Just take a look at all them patients out there on the plains. Must be eight of them to one of us. Right down the line. Then it makes it that much easier to get a medal. And how do you hope to get a medal? Maybe you're going to blow their bloody eardrums out with your little fife. More like it will not even have the chance to see how the beggars look. 
the band, as you might have heard, is going to wheel and retire when we reach them rocks. While the regular soldiers go on and attack the enemy. Which, I might say, is exactly the way I'd plan it myself. I got no fondness for being sliced up sliced up like a blooming leg of lamb. Oh, you got no spirit, you bloody little beggar. Beggar yourself and the bigger one. Them as want spirit can have it. Like as not, I'll have to pound your head a bit before you can... Here we go, Piggy. All right, Charlie. Ready now. I call it court. That's a quick part. Just keep your eye on me and I'll make a bloody ear out of you. Only someone had blundered. Someone had misread an order. And before and fit move out onto the plane to attack the enemy force alone. Confounded stupid conscripts. What are they up to anyhow? They've spoiled the whole plan of the battle. It's the kind of a mistake you could expect from a regiment that doesn't even know how to march. At the clump of rock, the band wheeled and halted and continued to play while the ranks opened to form a skirmish line and moved slowly ahead. Hold steady, laddies. We've had no orders to move out and therefore we'll stand fast. If the fallen pit wishes to fight like hawks, then they'll fight alone. At 500 yards range from the enemy line, the regiment began firing at will. At will and wildly. In a few minutes, they'd thrown away half their ammunition and blinded themselves with their own smoke. And farther out on the plain, the Afghan army stood quietly, throwing occasional well-aimed bullets into the milling herd of green troops. The blooming fools! They're bunching like a herd of sheep! Don't they realize there'll be a Ghazi charge at any minute? Suddenly, from the main body of the Afghan troops, a small band of about 50 Payton warriors charged forward and fell upon the startled Englishmen. These were the Ghazis. A suicide squad always thrown out ahead of the Afghan army before any main cast of strength. Swinging their long, heavy knives, they stuck the close-packed British line. Why in the name of heaven don't they take open order? They'll be cut to bits. The four and fifth wavered. Shuddered away from the vicious slashes of the murderous bone-handled knives, rallied for an instant and held, and then broke, turned tail, and ran. took no thought for the wounded, for the men left behind. Nor did they stop until they jammed in the pass that led up the hill. And the band, too, was carried along with them in their panicked, headlong flight. All the band except two men. Piggy, you think the bloody beggars can see us hiding here on the rock? Of course not. Seen as how they're too busy at chasing our brave comrades. Look at them run, the blooming cowards. Ain't it a fine way now for a British regiment to act? Had we done the same thing, we'd not be left behind here the way we are. What's eating you? You're comfortable, aren't you? Maybe comfortable, but I ain't easy in my mind. Oh, stow it. 
Somebody's dropped the canteen here. It's got rum in it. And how can you hope to tell by shaking it? And yeah, I'll keep your dirty hands off it. I'll do the trying it out. <coughs> well, is it, Peter? Is it? No, it's water. Here, have yourself a free drink on a majesty, drummer boy. <sighs> Look, them peace and beggars are starting back to their own lines. And keep your head down. Well, now, with the blooming enemy return, perhaps they'll come out and rescue us. Not them, the bloody cowards. Look at them, Jake. The officers has beaten them with the flats of their swords. Can't they see the patrons ain't chased them no more? They can't see nothing but their own precious skins. Up them, huh? Maybe we ought to give them a little music. Show them it's all nice and cozy out here now. Oh, no. It ain't for me to do nothing like that. What, we should get ourselves shot? Oh, there ain't no enemy close by now. Come on, Deacon. Take up your bloody drum there. You positive there's only water in that canteen? Oh, so like as not you're a coward, too. The same as the rest of the regiment. I'll show you who's a coward figure, my boy. And I'll be pounding your head a bit, too. The first chance I get, take your blooming fart there and stick it in your ugly face. Well, now, so you have got a bit of spirit. Maybe I'll speak to my old friend the colonel about it. Oh, shut up and start blowing. Ready? Ready all? Now! Is it going to march still, Biggie? Back and forth a time or two in full sight. Then we'll wait in the rocks for the battle to start. They watching us? We'll be sure they're watching us. Ah, yes. They're watching us, all right. Time held still. And even the Afghan snipers forgot their weapons. While two armies watched the tiny red-coated figures marching back and forth on the battlefield alone. Marion, I tell you certain there's a pair of brave laddies down there. All right, the blinking cowards! Look at them out there! Of in children, the only brave men in the regiment! The men of the fall and aft lifted their heads, fingered their rifles, and without moving. And out there on the silent plain, back and forth, marched Jacob and Piggy. You're going to play these blooming instruments all day long? Ain't the bride ever going to come back? Shut up, Jacob. Keep flying. Well, all I might say is I shouldn't ever let you talk me into this. I ain't cut out for after duty anyhow. I should have bloody well feel more comfortable if I was back in there. If I was back. Jacob. Jacob. Oh, you blinking heathen blighters. You've killed Jacob. All right, I'll show you who's afraid of you. saw them die from the sniper's bullets. Two armies and the men of the fore and aft. All right, men of the regiment, what now? Those two at least were brave enough to know how to die. Take bayonets, ready about, and hold carnage lines. This time we attack, and there'll be no turning back. Look at them, ladies, the fore and aft. They're going back to fight. Right, look at them run. 
As I would get him out of the first place, they'll not turn our backs again. Aye, laddie. And now's the time for us. For as I know, here's where we join the fight. Ready? Late afternoon saw the Afghan army wiped out. And the general explained to me how everything had gone according to his plan. And how he hoped I'd cable that back to my paper in London right away. I turned and left him then, and walked out across the silent battlefield. Walked out among the silent dead. The two tiny figures lay quite close together. Jakin fallen across his broken drum, and Piggy Lou, with the fife still clenched in his dirty fist. A bulge under his tunic caught my eye, and I reached in and drew out a button bag embroidered crudely with the name Chris. I made it for you myself, Piggy, my darling. And I put some of my own hair inside of it. I wear it right next to me, Aunt Chris, so long as I'm alive. I thought how Chris would soon forget and how the world's memory is no longer than hers. The sun was sinking away in the west. The button bag in the hand was soaked and damp. And over the left breast of Piggy's grimy uniform, over the pocket where citations are usually worn, a bright red stain had spread out through the coarse wool looking so very much like the bright red ribbon that goes with a medal. Escape is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and tonight brought to you the drums of the fore and aft by Rudyard Kipling. Adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, featuring Gil Stratton Jr. as Piggy Lou, Jimmy Ogg as Jakin, and Eric Rolfe as Rudyard Kipling. Until this same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. That was Escape with the Kipling classic, Drums of the Fore and Aft, from 1948. Sadly, though, that brings us to the end of another program. But before I sign off, I hope, once again, all of our friends in Ukraine are safe and okay. The folks at Mini Art Models, the folks at Strelitz, um, friends of the podcast, Glovin and Mikhail, please be safe. I reiterate that there's so little that us as individuals can do at times like this, but you hope that people who are in positions of power, people are in positions to do something, they do it so you can get back to your life and uh, really hope that happens. With that said, you've been listening in Southport, Australia, Henderson, Nevada, and Amsterdam in the Netherlands to the Shot and Shield Supercast. I am the Grand Duke Scott. I'm out. All right, you fight the wars. Just let us fight the battles, will you? We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. 
We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. 13!